This is one of those passages that uh, if we had have a commitment to just preaching through books of the Bible, that I would never pick, uh, just full disclosure. Uh, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, uh, it feels disjointed, especially if you're trying to follow the chapters that have been picked out, you know, here. Like, I don't, it just seems like a prov- it just seems like a bunch of Proverbs dropped in the middle of his, of his philosophy, and it's strange. But I've uh, actually been blessed by studying and, and diving in here, and I think uh, starting where we did and ending where we did is, is the best sense I can make out of a theme of this section. And I think he, the teacher is, is trying to teach us how to handle adversity. He, again, this book is all about getting real, isn't it? Like, if you've been here, it's pushing us to the brink of asking really hard questions about life. Questions that aren't comfortable, questions that we don't want to ask, especially when things are going well. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't feel like we need to ask these things, but he is taking us there uh, to deal with them so that when we do run into things in life, when, adv- when adversity does come, we have a firm foundation to stand on. And so that's exactly what he's doing. And, and, uh, and, he, and he's just going to be, I, I think, super practical, but in some really hard stuff. And so um, the Bible actually has a lot of space for us to acknowledge a theme and um, and the Lord's presence in the midst of suffering and adversity. Our culture doesn't have any space for that, right? Our cultural narrative doesn't have any space for suffering being a good thing, suffering being from the hand of the Lord. In fact, they will use it often to say, well, if these things exist, how could you still believe in a God? And we sort of dealt with that in the sermon a few weeks ago on evil, and this is related, because you deal with the same, you get to the same root questions when you deal with the problem of evil and the problem of suffering, and oftentimes they're um, one and the same thing. And so, um, but, but, so our culture has no space for that, but the Bible does. We have a lot of stories that, that we know, and, and sometimes because we know the end of them, we don't get the, the real encouragement that comes from setting in the thick of it, okay? Uh, we sang a song earlier, like, when all I see are the ashes, you see the beauty. When I, all I see is the cross, Lord, you see the empty tomb. And, and we've been gifted with, with a Bible that, that gives us the end of the story, that gives us how these things turn out. But there is a lot of tension for those that have lived it. There is a lot of tension in the stories that are recorded in the Bible. I think of Joseph. Some of y'all may know the story of Joseph. It's, it's recorded in Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis 50. And if you get to the end of, of the book of Genesis in 50, there's this incredible line where Joseph tells his brothers, who, and it's this incredible story, but he tells his brothers, hey, what you all meant for evil, God actually meant for good. And we, and we can rejoice in that, and we can use that as a reminder that God has not left us, that God is with us through the hard things. But what we, we can do also is move really quickly through chapters 37 through, through 49 and not realize that there was a whole lot of tension that Joseph walked through, a whole lot of tension of what in the world, God? Like, where are you, God? You see that in David in the Psalms, literally David going, where are you? Like, with some, with some emotion, with some angst, with some fear, with some like real life feelings in there. And so the Bible has space for that. And in fact, the book, the, the story of Joseph, I want to I use that to sort of be a, a backdrop or a, a case study, if you will, for as we walk through this passage. I, I, want, I want you to, to, to know a little bit more about it. So just really quickly, if you don't know the story of Joseph, you might have seen some play about it or, uh, you know, a VeggieTales or some video, Joseph and his coat of many colors. Um, and, and that's how it starts. Joseph's a 17-year-old um, punk, frankly, right? Like he is, he's arrogant, he's got dreams, and he's not afraid to tell everybody about his dreams, particularly his older brothers. His dad loves him more than his brothers. His brothers are not a big fan of him because of all of that, because of his dad loving him more, because of his posture. And so you may know the story, they uh, throw Joseph, they're going to kill him, and they decide, you know what, we won't won't kill him, but we'll throw him in a pit, which will ensure that he eventually dies. One of the brothers, Reuben's like, okay, man, this is We've gone a little far. Let's get him out of the pit, right? Um, and then we'll sell him into slavery. Okay, so yeah, he's a punk, 17-year-old punk, but he doesn't deserve this. And again, we know these stories. We go, okay, he was thrown into a pit. Like, I don't know if you can imagine yourself being in a pit or not, but like the idea is he ain't, he ain't getting out. And he's left, and it's dark, and he's helpless. Well, then they get him out. Maybe this is good. No, he gets sold into slavery. Okay? I, that's human trafficking. That's, that's like my life is no longer the same. I, he's, he's, he's not going back home. So, so don't just hear this in the story of, you know, illustrated picture, like kids' Bible stuff. Like I want you to feel the tension. I want you to go into those moments of what he's wrestling with and feeling. 
Certainly his dreams are dashed, but I, I got to think that his dreams of ruling over his brothers are probably the farthest thing from his mind as he's being carried off into slavery. Right? But then, uh, the, the, like his story just kind of has these ups and downs, right? If you chart it on a graph, it's like things, things seem to be going up and then they take a big drop and then they, maybe they're getting better and then they drop again. And, and, and that's how Joseph's story goes and on and on. And I think you can maybe relate. Maybe, right? Like you, you've had moments in your life, man, this is going really well. This is headed where I thought it would. And then all of a sudden the bottom falls out. All of a sudden a call comes in. All of a sudden a, a job is no longer there. All of a sudden a relationship that you thought would be forever is, is, has been removed from you, either by death or, or by divorce or, or whatever it may be. And, and so I think we can relate as we get into these pain points of his story. Right? And then, but, but he finds favor, he, he's, he's in slavery, and he gets in Potiphar's house, and he's, he's, he's doing really well, right? But then, what happens? He, he has a woman who tries to take advantage of him. He does the right thing and runs away because it's his boss's wife, but she flips it, makes a false accusation, and he ends up in prison. So now he's in prison, and he's there, and he's in, in prison, and he, he finds favor with some guys who are, are, are there and are kind of in with Potiphar, and, he, and, he, and the Lord uses him to interpret their dreams, and he says, hey, when y'all get out, remember me. And you think, okay, maybe the story's going to turn, like Joseph's going to get some favor from these guys, and guess what? They get out, and they forget. They forget, and he sets in prison for years. And it's not until 13 years later, 13 years, church, does Joseph end up getting placed into a position of power and influence in Egypt. But, and then the Lord uses that. and uses his gifting to save all of God's people, to save his family and the whole country of Israel. Because if, if Joseph hadn't been there, he didn't make it to Egypt. Egypt's the power uh, of the day, the, the, and, and God gives Joseph the ability to interpret the Pharaoh's dream, said, hey, there's going to be a famine. If we don't save food, then we're all going to die. Joseph saves food, and he saves Egypt, but he also saves all of Israel. And that's what leads his brothers to come back to him asking for food. And in that moment in chapter 50 is whenever he, he's able to say, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. This, this path is not like from, from Joseph's 17-year-old cocky self to him being on the throne in Egypt is not a straight line. It's what Solomon would call crooked. But it's the line that he needed to take in order to accomplish the purpose that God had for him. But in the midst of those crooked spaces in our life, in the midst of those curves and those ups and downs, we can feel some real pain and we can be really unsure. And there was 13 years there where he was for sure not on the trajectory that he thought his life should be. And what do we do in those moments? What do we do with that? What do we do with that? And I think that's where Solomon wants to press us in here. So let's look. Let's keep that story as a backdrop. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, starting in verse 10. He's going to say, whatever has come to be has already been named. Okay, so, so he's going to just start naming the sovereignty of God. He, he said in chapter 3, uh, hey, there's a time for everything, right? We went through that. He's saying, whatever's going to come, it, it's already been named and ordained by God. It, it, it's, it's not in question. Uh, it's already... already um, in place, like God already has the future determined, all right? And it's known what man is, okay? So he's saying, okay, history is already on its course, and we're really clear about what man is. What is man? He's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. What's he doing here? He's positioning us here to remember what we saw in chapter five as we approach God, he's in heaven and we are not. So we, we may not like what is coming down the pike in the future, but he's gonna say, Spoiler alert, you have no ability to change it. Ah, oh, with some tension. With some tension. Even singing those songs this morning, like the Bible just leaves tension. This, this, this intersection between God's sovereignty and, and, and our will and our action and what we're called to do, it, it, it's, it's crazy. But, but the Lord is ultimately sovereign. But, but we have stories in the Bible like, like Paul when he's on the ship and, and it's about to crash and, and everybody thinks they're going to crash. And God comes to Paul and says, nobody will perish. Go tell the, you know, go tell the, um, the, the captain of the ship that. But then you know, he goes and tells him that. And then the guys start to freak out and you know, come up with other plans. They say, and Paul says, well, if you do that, we'll all die. But you're like, wait, Paul, you just said that God said none of us are going to die. But yeah, but if you do that, you'll all die. But God said, we won't die. Like you have to, like, so there's this tension of like, yes, God has ordained this and we're all going to make it to shore, like, well, 
But in the midst of this, it's our responsibility to stay faithful. It's, it's a really hard tension, and the Bible acknowledges that tension, and in fact doesn't require that we resolve it fully, but it requires that we enter into a trusting relationship that God has the future in place, and we are in a position of submission and receiving that from him, which is exactly what Solomon is naming. He says, we're not able to dispute with one stronger than he. So we can talk about it. We can, we can, we can argue with God, but it, what does he say? The more words, the more what? Here's the theme of our book, vanity. We're, like, we, can, we can argue that this, like Joseph can argue, God, this is not what you had planned for me. I am gifted. I am better than my brothers. The world needs me out of prison. The world needs me in influence. The world needs me to do these things. I need me to do these things. We can argue, but we just sound like a fool before God who has a plan. So the more words, the more vanity. And what advantage is that to man? So we can talk, we can, we can argue, we can, we can try to change his mind, but it's, it's vanity, he says. But here's the here's the. Here's where we get into the beauty. If we're honest with ourselves, if we'll let Solomon take us down this road, it's going to require some humility, but in that, we can receive comfort. This is what he says in verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, right? Solomon just doesn't mince words. He's like, really, do you think you know what's good for you while you're living your pitiful little fleeting life? Right, this word vanity as we've talked about, is the theme of the, of the book, and, and, it, and, it's, and it mostly encaptures this idea of, of fleeting or, or of vapor or of a mist. And so it's not that it's not meaningful, it's not that it's not real, but it's, it's fleeting. And I think the idea of fleetingness is, is the primary meaning here. It says, so who knows what's good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Are you saying, really, you're gonna tell God what's good and what's not good. You're just here for a moment. It's this idea of when, whenever it's cold and you can see your breath, it's, it's just there for a moment. The mist comes off your windshield, like it, it's, it's just there for a moment. That's how the Bible describes our life, not just here, over, over and over again. The time that we're here seems so predominant and so important because it's your life, right? But the Bible is consistently reminding us that, hey, your life, is like a vapor. It, it's, it's momentary and it's fleeting. So in that position, are we really going to tell God what's good and what's bad? Here's what he says. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Now why does that matter? What he's saying is, which of you could say, hey, we know what's going to happen in the future, and so this is good or this is bad? Well, we can't. We don't know the future. So we can't actually make a determination on what's good in this moment. Do you see what he's getting at? He's saying, you don't know what's coming, so you don't really have a good vantage point to say whether this is a good like, route to take or not. Okay, it's like having a 30,000 foot view versus right here in the moment. Like I can't see that there may be traffic down the road or there's a, there's a, there's a wreck up the way, and so being told to take this, this route seems like it's gonna add three hours to my time, but if I knew what, you know, the powers that be and the satellites knew that, oh, I'm not getting through this for another day and a half, then, okay, three extra hours on this route, that makes some sense, right? It's this sort of encouragement that, hey, you don't know what's coming next, so you aren't really in a position to say whether what you're going through right now is actually good or actually bad. And this is where Solomon wants us to get to and understand that the Lord is sovereign, that he sees the future, that he knows the story that he's writing, he knows how it ends, and because of that, he is not only okay with allowing us some adversity and some suffering, but he will very often author it into our stories for the sake of a greater purpose that we can't see on this side. Okay, so God is sovereign. That's the first thing that Solomon wants us to see is that God is sovereign and we're not. And we could talk and we can argue and we can go on and on and on, but he says, that just makes us sound vain. What we need to do is accept this reality that we don't know what the future holds, so we don't really get a good vantage point on what our present circumstances are. So God is sovereign. Now, it sounds nice theologically. 
The sovereignty of God, it's easy to affirm, generally speaking, God's in control, God has all of this, but, but when it gets to the personal stuff, when it gets to this stuff that we're talking about, the tragedies, the diagnosis, the sin against us, it gets a lot harder to work through, doesn't it? And that's where Solomon wants us to go this morning. And he wants us to start by acknowledging, hey, we don't know what the future holds, so we can't make a good judgment on this moment. So now we're gonna get into ver- to chapter seven. This is a section of Proverbs. Okay, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to shift and, and get back in verse 14, some more prose that's going to be talking about the Proverbs. But this, this section of Proverbs means he's, he's being a teacher in this moment. He's called the teacher throughout this book. He's trying to teach us something. He's, he's trying to actually show us something to encourage us as God's people that when suffering comes along, our, our goal is, is not to just trust a sovereign God, but to actually look to let it teach us and grow us, to look for what is good even in the midst of adversity. You might know this passage from Romans chapter 5. It's a famous passage, and it reminds us that our suffering is not in vain. It says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, okay? Only the gospel can allow us to say something so ridiculous, and we'll get to that. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces what? Endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul is going to say, hey, listen, we actually are able to look at suffering differently than the rest of the world. So much so that we can rejoice in it. Why? Because our suffering is going to produce endurance in us. And endurance is going to produce character. And character produces hope. And hope will not put us to shame. Right? This is a purpose that God has for us as his people. Right? It is not like we, if we come in with the American ideology and the American dream in our brain and we try to shape the Bible to, to, to fulfill that, we're going to be consistently frustrated because it's not God's agenda. Okay? But if we come in and let the Bible shape and form what's in our brain, then we're going to be able to live through with an endurance and with a character and even with a joy through whatever comes, America or wherever we end up landing. Okay, and that's what God wants for us. He wants us to transcend these these moments of cultural volatility or cultural prosperity so that we remain joyful and rooted and grounded in him. And so this idea that that we can rejoice in suffering only comes because of the cross. It only comes because of the gospel. This is the only way that we are able to say this. So let's rewind a bit back to the beginning of Romans chapter five, and let's see what verses one and two says. This is why we can rejoice in our suffering. He says, since we've been justified by faith, we have a peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Then he says, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. So because of our salvation, because we have been given such a great salvation, and if you're here, if you don't know, if you're new to Christianity, our salvation is not one of self-help, figure it out, and you can succeed and live your best life now. Our salvation is one of saying, this life is broken, this life is busted, and it will not satisfy you. That's been the whole thing of Ecclesiastes so far. It's a guy who had everything saying, let me tell you what having everything got me. Nothing. It's empty. It's emptiness, because the thing that I'm really longing for, the only thing that will actually leave me fulfilled, I can't get to because of my sin, and that's God. But the gospel transforms all of that. When Jesus steps in and says, I know you can't get to God, so God has come to you. He has come to us. He stepped into our mess, and he has made a way for us to be reconciled unto God, and that transforms everything. That allows us to live in a jacked up, broken world with a hope that transcends this world. And when we get that, now we're much closer to being able to rejoice in our sufferings, not just endure our sufferings, not just make it through, but actually to be able to rejoice. And so Solomon says, get there. Acknowledge that. You're not sovereign. God is. So he's going to end, verse 14, is going to say, hey, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. It's good. You don't have to apologize for celebrating as a Christian. But in the day of adversity, you need to consider this. God has made the one as well as the other so that we won't find out what's coming after him. So he's given us both days of prosperity and days of adversity, and we need to remember both. We remember when we're in both that, hey, these have come from 
God. So that, that's where he's taking us. And so he's going to say, hey, once we submit to that, now we can let adversity, we can let suffering become a teacher for us. We can let suffering shape us and do what Romans 5 said. What does it look like? Paul says it really quickly, right? He says, we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame, right? Paul says it's like we're just going through a car wash. You start here, and you end up on the other side. You got character. We all know it's a lot longer of a process. It looks much closer to the 13-plus years like Joseph went through than it does finish line car wash where we're out in and out in just a few moments, right? There will be hardship. There will be spaces, even seasons in our life that are going to feel hard. So what do we do? What do we do? Okay. Solomon says, turn adversity into a teacher. So we're going to look at just a few principles that I think can help us do that. Okay. Because it sounds good. How do we do that? What does it look like to get from what he says? Okay. We're suffering and we have character, we have hope, we have endurance. What does that look like? Well, I think that's his goal. So let's, let's look at just a few principles from chapter 7 in these Proverbs. We're going to try to lump them into like three or four categories here. The first one is when we go through adversity, we need to face it. We don't need to numb ourselves or avoid it. We need to face it. Let's look at verse 1. He says this, a good name is better than precious ointment. Okay, now that, that makes sense, right? Like, what he's saying is a good name, a good reputation, a good character, you can't just go buy it off the shelf, right? You have to, it has to be earned. Well, how do you earn that stuff? You got to go through some stuff, right? People, you know this, that people like speak of you a certain way or you speak of other people a certain way because you've seen them go through some stuff. You've seen them endure things and how they responded tells you a lot about their character, doesn't it? So he's saying, listen, this is something that's going to cost you but it's, it's worth it because it's, it's better than just covering it up, right? It's better than just having an ointment to just kind of cover up the stuff. It's better to go through it and be shaped and be formed. A good name is better than precious ointment, okay? That, that's just how he wants to frame this up. It's, it's, it's going to take some life. It's going to be hard, but it's worth it because it's going to shape you. Exactly what, what Paul, it's a more poetic way of saying what Paul is, is pointing out in Romans chapter 5. But now he says something super weird. He says, the day of death... <clears throat> And the day of death is better than the day of birth. Okay, that's a little bit weird, Solomon, but, but let's, let's keep going. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Okay, it's just getting weirder. And for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He, sorrow is better than laughter, but for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Uh, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, and the, ho- the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than the song of fools. Right? What is he talking about? Like, why is he saying all of this stuff that it's like better is the day of death than the day of birth? Why, but it gets better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Like, what is he wanting us to understand? And, and, and here's why it's so important to keep all this context. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about uh, adversity actually producing something in us. And if we want to get the, the character, the inheritance that he's going to talk about at the end of wisdom, then we have to allow it to shape us and we have to allow it to, to form our character down deep. And to do that, we can't avoid it and we can't numb ourselves with partying and with just checking out. So that's what he's saying. He's like, listen, yeah, the, the day of birth is, 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 is a good thing and it's celebratory. And he's not saying it's wrong to rejoice at the day of birth, but he's saying it's not as instructive as it is when you have to go to a funeral home. That we go and celebrate when a new baby is born, and we we go to the hospital, we go to the house, we take gifts, and that's good and right. And it causes you to think about nostalgia. If you've had kids and go there, it's good. But it's not nearly as instructive as when you have to go to the funeral home. Because when you go to the funeral home, you're confronted with your mortality. And when you were confronted with your mortality, it, it reminds you, oh yeah, I can't just waste my life. I have to, to be diligent about this. I have to live in light of my death. I can't deny it. So it's better than being in denial, right? Like we, 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 we sort of say like, hey, we go to the funeral home. We say, well, he's in a better place. He's no longer suffering, right? And, and I think there's, there's some level of that. We've seen Solomon go pretty dark and say, hey, sometimes I wish I hadn't been born rather than to see all of this suffering and see all this oppression. But I think in this moment, what he's saying is it's more instructive to our character when we go through these hard things and we actually have to show up at the funeral home when we go through hard things that lead us to mourning. And, and, and I think what he's pushing is, is helping us see that when this kind of adversity happens, a lot of times we have a couple different tendencies. Some people will face it head on. Some people are good at mourning. Some people will set in it. 
And mourning has no time frame. I know of several people that have lost spouses or people, uh, you know, that are close to them. And sometimes people want to say, aren't you ready to move on yet? Aren't you ready to, you know, fill in the blank? Shouldn't you be here yet? And, and that's so frustrating for those people because there's no time frame. There's no, there's no cookie cutter template for this. But, but what he is saying is it's better to actually enter in rather than try to avoid because that's some of our tendency, isn't it? Let's open up a bottle Right? Let's, let's, let's uh, lose our sorrows in the midst of, you know, let me, let, me, let me drink a few alcoholic beverages so I don't feel the pain that I'm feeling anymore. Let me just go out with my friends. Let me just go party. Let me just go check out. Let me turn on Netflix and just binge. Let me just avoid feeling what I'm feeling. Some of y'all don't, like, you, you, don't, you don't know how to feel that sense of sadness you don't know how to feel the sense of heaviness that's there, so you avoid it. And this is what he's talking about. Like, the, 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 when they're going to the house of laughter and of mirth, he said it's, it's not productive for them. It's not going to, to shape them. It's going, and it's not, that, it's not just that they're going to miss out on the, the good character development. They think they're avoiding it, and really they're just bearing it, and we'll get to that later. But there is something instructive to facing hardship, to facing suffering and death. Psalm 90, we're going to talk about death in a couple weeks in, in depth, but, but this is part of what he's leading us here too. And, and Psalm uh, 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. So there, there's something the Lord has for you in, in terms of wisdom whenever you're brought to that place of mourning, when you're brought to that place of sadness. Okay, and it says, because that's where we're all headed into verse two. This is the end of mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. It means those that are living, like we, we let this be informative and instructive for us. Okay? Um, he goes on to say, sorrow's better than laughter. He's talking about in these moments of pain and mourning and hardship, yes, it's good to, to, to laugh and you're gonna need to take a break from setting in that morning. But in reality, if you just avoid it altogether, you'll never experience healing. You need to enter into that pain. You need to enter into that grieving process, right? Pop psychology, counseling, therapists, they'll tell you this too. You can't just numb. You can't just check out. You can't pretend it didn't happen. You need to face it. You need to set in it because it's through sadness, he says, that the face, or, <clears throat> the sadness of the face that the heart is eventually made glad. Like that we need to enter in and acknowledge our suffering, acknowledge our pain, acknowledge what we're going through. The heart of the wise is, is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, right? He's saying, saying people who are, who are gonna be better through this suffering are the ones that are facing it, walking through the steps of grief, being honest and, and going there. The one who's just out avoiding it and won't deal with it. The Bible says that they're acting foolishly. It won't end well for them. It's better, even if, even if that is a rebuke, as verse 5 says, even if facing it is going to change your course of life. And some of you, that's, some of the, that's part of your story. It was that wake-up call. It was that tragedy. It was that diagnosis. It was that pregnancy or whatever that changed the course of your life. It, that's what woke you up. It was a rebuke. These, these moments of adversity can end up being character rebukes on us where we realize, oh, if I don't change my life, that's where I'm headed to. And he says, that, that's, that, that's hard in the moment, but it's better. It's better than to just keep hearing the song of fools. Verse six, for the crackling of thorns under a pot, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. In those days, and maybe you've done this, you've, uh, but thorns are, are, are really quick burning and they burn hot, but they build really fast, and they make popping sounds as they burn. So it's a quick way to get a fire started and, full, and fuel for it. And it sounds like the fire's really going, right? It's like popping and cracking. And you're like, oh, this is, this, is, this is really burning. This is really going somewhere. But then what you realize is, oh, it's gone really fast. I, I built this fire, and now it, it's gone. There was no substance to it. It's not going to last. It was short-lived, and now I'm left with nothing, and I'm cold again, right? And this is what happens when we try to numb through whatever your vice is, whatever your escape is. It may help in a moment. It may feel better in that moment, but it's not sustaining your healing. It's not sustaining your growth. It's not going to lead you to a continual life. You're going to have to do some hard work of getting some real wood under there so that that fire can actually sustain you through what's coming in life. And so he's, he's saying that, that's what it's like when you just try to party instead of face your grief. It's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. It's vanity. It's not helpful. 
So face it, right? Don't numb. Don't run from it. Don't avoid it. Face it. This is, he wants us to know that it can be instructive for you. Next, he says, persevere, right? Don't bail. You need to stay in it, right? Verse seven, he says this, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning and the patient and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, um, these moments of oppression, these moments of suffering, these moments of adversity, it's going to be hard. Even, even driving you into madness. And frankly, the Bible says, like, that's okay for you to feel that, for, you, for it to be hard. For you to be on the verge of losing your mind. You read some of the Lamentations, you read some of the Psalms, and it's like, I don't know if this dude's stable. Somebody needs to check on David. And I'm not even kidding. Like, it's like, whoa, bro. Like, and that happens in life. And in those moments is when we're going to be tempted to walk away from God. We're going to be tempted to make resolutions and agreements in our heart that lead us away from the Lord or that lead us away from the process that he has us in. That's why he says a bribe corrupts the heart. So it's in those moments that Satan and our enemy is going to be able to whisper the loudest. See, God doesn't care about you. See, I told you your faith was a hoax. See, I told you your spouse isn't worth it. See, I, I told you, right? This is where those whispers or those things that were once whispers become screams in our mind and it's hard for us to shut them off. And that's when a temptation to just walk away, a temptation to just get some temporary relief, a temptation to just be able to enjoy life for a moment, that's when it becomes really powerful. And that's when a lot of people get knocked off their faith. We, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago. The devil is, is, is our enemy, and he's prowling around looking for someone to devour. If we know anything, if you've watched, you know, National Geographic or whatever, it's all over now. I guess that's not really a channel. But if you've watched any of the wildlife stuff, what, a predator is going to look for what? Somebody that's alone, somebody that's struggling, somebody that's given up. Like, they're going to target them to take out. And so these moments of, of adversity can lead us to a place where we're tempted to bail. Don't bail. Persevere. Persevere. Don't take the easy way out. Here's why. Verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in the spirit. Okay? So what he's saying here is, yeah, it's hard in the moment. It's hard right now. But if you'll wait to the end, it's worth it. It's, it's, it's a thing that is worth waiting for. What God is doing in you is worth waiting for. You don't know when that that thing, that reward that's, that's worth waiting for, you don't know when that's going to come. But the beauty of the gospel is that we can be assured that it will come. We saw this in, in the Beatitudes. It said, blessed are the mourn for what? They will be comforted. Not they might. Not maybe if they're lucky. It says they will. God's people that enter into a grieving process over what sin has done in the world, they will be comforted. Some of you, this is where you're going to have to sit and and really have some hard prayer conversations with the Lord. Even as we were singing the songs this morning, I was just really aware of what I know some of you are going through. And frankly, it's hard to preach this to you, if I'm going to be honest. Because I, I know there's, some of you have gone through things that there just seems to be zero explanation for the goodness of God and what you've experienced in your life. And I don't blame you for being angry and tempted to bail. I don't, I don't blame you for that because it's really hard. And this is where we ask the questions about like, okay, Lord, but where are you? Where were you when this happened to me? Like it's one thing to talk about big, like large-scale calamity and disaster. That's hard too. But when you start talking about a child being raped or you start talking about somebody being abused in, in such a way or, or neglected and some of the stories we hear in foster care, you start trying to reconcile that and, and it gets really hard to still declare the goodness of God and then he, that he hasn't failed us yet. 
Like, I'm going to be honest, I got some stories that I feel like he failed us. And it's hard. It's hard in those moments. I want to say to you what, what the rest of the Bible says about where, like, where was he in that moment. We'll never fully reconcile that until that day. But what you can know about him is where he is and where he was when whatever happened to you or your loved one or whatever's happening right now, where he is and where he's always been is on his throne. Right? And for one thing, he's preparing a, war, a reward for those who have suffered so greatly, especially children, a reward that will, be, will pay them back 10,000-fold for what they've gone through. That in eternity, that suffering, that thing will not hold a candlestick to what their reward will be. And at the same time, he's preparing a hell that will serve justice to those who have done it to them. And we've got to sit in that. And know that both of those things are true. And we don't know what's coming after. We don't know how he's going to use us, use these stories. We don't know how they turn out good. We've got to trust that he's on the throne. That he's even more righteously angry than you are about the brokenness of our world. And yet he has a plan. He has a plan to, to reward those who have suffered unjustly at the hands of evil and sin in such a way that it won't even be able to hold, like, we'll just rejoice. And at the same time, he's, he's preparing a hell that will serve out justice beyond what we could ever dream needed to be held out. So, we lean in Jesus and we wait. And we, we believe that what he has for us at the end of this is better than what we're going through in this moment. That that, that Romans 8, 18 is real when it says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So don't bail on the process. These present sufferings cannot compare to the glory that he has for you down the road. Okay, But in that hardness, the next thing that he would say is don't get angry, don't be bitter, All right? Verse nine, he says, don't be quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Okay, some of you, that, that is your first, that's your knee-jerk reaction is to get angry. Or maybe it's not even your knee-jerk, but after a while of setting in it and not seeing God's hand deliver you, not seeing God's hand show up, you start to slip into resentment. You start to slip into bitterness, and it will lead to what? What does he say? Anger lodging into our hearts. Lodging into our hearts. So, we can't just go there and, 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 like, listen, I think there's space for you. There's journal entries in my own life, and certainly you could see the Psalms as a bit of a journal entry for David. There's space for, for Lord, where are you? There's space for hard questions. There's space for anger against God. But when you just grasp onto that and you say, this is my position and I'm going to stay here. I have a right to be angry. I'm entitled to this anger. That's going to lodge into your heart, and it's only going to harm you. So he's saying, don't, don't do that. That's not going to end well for you. That's, that, that's not going to end well for you. There's, a, there's a, um, a therapist who does a podcast called The Place We Find Ourselves that, that my wife has listened to a lot for her work uh, with helping uh, kiddos in, that have gone through trauma in childcare and helping the parents and the foster families bring healing to them. And it's really beautiful. His name's Adam Young, and he says this. is really powerful. I heard it just this week. He says, when we bury our past, we bury it alive. When we don't deal, when we just bury, we're like, we're not getting rid of it. We're not, we're not moving on. That stuff is still going to own us. It's still going to show up in our lives. It's still going to determine the direction of our lives. It's still going to dictate what we're feeling. So, so what is he saying? Don't, don't go there. Don't let it lodge into your heart. Don't let it sit there. How do we do this? It's easier said than done, right? Don't get angry. Don't let it get a, get a lodging. How do we do this? I, I think there's a lot of work that's going to be done. There's no quick silver bullet pull, uh, pill for you to just take and you know, move on and get, not be angry and not have bitterness. But I think as we look at the rhythm that the Lord has for his people, 
We see a, a rhythm of confession. We see a, a rhythm of, of lament. We see a rhythm of community. And we see a rhythm of just worshiping, even in the pain, that I think we need to adopt. And so how do we do that? Listen, you need to have regular rhythms of processing. Some of y'all haven't prayed or talked to God because you were really afraid of what you would say. Or you're not sure he's listening. Listen, just, just start by naming it. Write it down. I think, a, I think a journal is one of the most powerful tools that a Christian can have in, in processing this stuff. You just need to write it down. If you're not able to verbalize it to anybody else, just a little bit, write it down. Like, and do that regularly. Write down, be honest. Don't pretty up your thoughts because you think you've got to talk a certain Christian way. Be honest. Be honest with, the, with your God. And then you need to have some people that you're able to be honest with. Not, not social media. Okay, that's not a helpful place to process. But you need to have some people. You need to have a community group. That's what we're here for. If you don't have a community group, you, we have your, like, and even if you do, we have elders, we have pastors. That's, that's one of our jobs, and we're glad to help you enter into this. We partner with a, with a counseling um, organization that we can help you get trusted, good counseling to work through this. Sometimes that's necessary, and that's okay. So be honest. Process with God. Process with some people that you, you know and trust. Don't pull your punches. Be honest about where you are. Let your anger out. That's how you don't let it get lodged in you, is you, you name it, and you invite people into it, and you, and you let the grace of God just, just sit there with you, and that's okay. It won't be quick. It's not going to be a one-session thing, but you need to be moving through that. All right, we've got to keep moving. The next thing he says is, Roman don't, don't romanticize your past. All right, what's he saying? Verse 10. Uh, oh, sorry, yeah, verse 10. Where, why were the former days better than these? We, like, we, we get that. Like, why can't we go back to before this? Why, why can't we just go back to then, whenever so-and-so was still here, or before all of this happened? Like, we, we have this, this, this tendency to fantasize about the past before things got as hard as they are now, or so, or so we think. He says, listen, that, that's not from wisdom that you ask that. That doesn't come from a place of wisdom. So you're asking the wrong question, he says. Wisdom's worth pursuing, but that's not coming from wisdom. Why? Because wisdom learns from the past, but it embraces the present, right? As, as this is where God has us now, right? What good does it do to talk about the past? So don't romanticize about the days before your suffering came. Instead, remember and fantasize and even idealize about what's coming in the future. Ideal, like Think about what's coming in eternity future. Think about the promises that still stand. Think about what's coming, as Paul said, whatever's good, whatever's right, whatever's holy, whatever's pure, whatever's redeemable. Like Think about those things. Think about the, the present sufferings cannot even compare to the future glory. That's what we need to have in our, in our mind. That needs to be the default thing that's on repeat in our mind. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to preach this to ourselves too. Like we don't long for the days back before suffering came. We long for the days when suffering are no longer a thing. Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning for the day when Christ comes and sets this world right. That's what we long for. So don't romanticize your past. Instead, look ahead to God's future. And then lastly, submit and surrender to God's purposes. Okay, verse 11 says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and it is an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge, knowledge is, like, <clears throat> is, the, is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. What's he saying? He says, listen, wisdom is worth getting. It's back to verse 1 when he said, you know, a good character is better than a precious ointment. Wisdom's worth getting, but it, it's going to cost you to get there. But it's like an inheritance. And, and, it's, and its value uh, transcends suffering and the market and all those things. Why? Because it's part of how you get it. That's part of how you get there, right? It's worth pursuing because it can serve you. Wisdom, right? this endurance that Paul talked about, it can serve you through seasons of prosperity and through seasons of, of, of adversity. Right? If you had an, an investment opportunity, right, um, you know, Bitcoin, whatever it is, it's, it's not susceptible to the market. It's only going to increase in value. That'd get everybody's attention, right? It'd turn the world upside down. This is what's being offered with wisdom. This is what's being offered with the scriptures. He's saying, I have something that, that will sustain you and will increase in value no matter what comes through your life. You should value it. You should treasure it. And therefore, we don't try to get out of it. 
We don't try to run from it. We don't try to avoid it. We step into it. I've shared before the, the illustration of buffalo or bison. Whenever they see a storm coming, they don't, they don't just lay down. They don't just endure. They don't just they don't try to get away. They see a storm coming, what do they do? They huddle up and they head right into it. It's awesome. You should Google it. It's really cool. Why do they do that? They're going to be more stable as they're moving toward it, as, as they, they have a purpose. They're not just getting blown around, but also they're going to get through it faster. They're going to get to the other side faster. They know that. It's a beautiful thing. It's cool. It's just a random illustration. I think God's given us to bless his people into the storm, right? We, we, we step in and, and we go, okay, God has something for us in this. Let's not run from it. Let's not avoid it. Let's step in and let it shape us, and we'll get to the other side faster. We'll get to eternity faster. We'll get to the place of rejoicing faster as we step in and lean in and submit and surrender that, hey, this is what God has brought us. This is what he says in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Just think about it. God's sovereign. That means where he has you right now, he has you there on purpose. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? I'm sure Joseph would have rather gone right from his father's house with his fancy coat to the throne of Egypt. But there's no path that way. It was crooked. It was jagged. It was hard. But in the end, the Lord had a purpose for it. Far beyond Joseph's nonsensical dreams, right? Same is true for us. So what does he say? Verse 14, he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. It's been a theme in this book. I don't apologize for enjoy. Like Some of you are like, man, I'm not really suffering right now. Hey, enjoy that. I don't apologize for it. Enjoy that. But, when the day adversity comes, the day of adversity comes, consider God brought me here just like he brought me to prosperity. We used to sing a song called Blessed Be the Name. He gives and he takes away. Like, you just need, just stop for a moment and acknowledge the fact that God put a book like Job in the Bible. Like, I'm going to edit that one out if that's up to me. You don't know the story of Job. It's crazy. Like, what it said, like, there's this guy who's righteous. He, he loves people. He loves God. He's doing all the right things. And within a chapter, that dude's lost everything. I mean everything. His family, his land, all of it. And then for the next, like, 38 chapters, it's just him processing that and lamenting that and walking through that. But the point is to show that nothing comes through the, like nothing gets to our life without passing through the hand of God, that he has a purpose for it. So Solomon's saying is even when we're struggling, when there's adversity, stop and remember, okay, God's brought us this, this too. He's blessed us, he gives, and he takes away. Blessed be the name. That needs to be, that's our posture. And, and through that, we can be shaped, we can be formed. Okay, so verse 13 says, who can make straight what he's made crooked? That's the, he's saying that's the wrong question. Instead of being angry at what the, the season that you're in and angry that you're suffering, angry that it's hard and trying to straighten it out and get it back to, to easy as fast as you can, instead of that, we need to surrender and say, okay, Lord, through this crookedness, through this hard season, Straighten me out. You straighten me out through this hard stuff. That's not going to be easy. But Hebrews has this great encouragement. This is when it's hard, when it's difficult, when you're in pain. You could take comfort because we don't have a great high priest. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. You know this church? We don't have a God who's, who's disconnected from our suffering, who just says, yeah, I know it's hard. Maybe you'll get here where I am soon enough. Maybe you'll figure it out. No, we have a God who's able to sympathize because he has lived the way that we've lived. Like he was tempted in every way. He was suffered in every way that we have and yet was without sin. He's able to sit there and go, I know it's, it's hard, child. I know that it's painful, but stay with it. Stay with it. The Bible says that for the glory set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That he knew, and listen, what comfort is it that Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross? You know what he did in Gethsemane? 
pleading with God, like, is there not another way? I don't want this adversity. I don't want, th this is a hard that I don't know that I want to do, Lord. If there's any other way other than this crooked path. Really? We gotta, we gotta save mankind by going down into this really painful place of the cross and taking on their sin? Like, if there's any other way, Lord, I'm in for that one. There's not. He says, not my will, but yours be done. And then he resolved himself, and he says, for the glory, for the joy that is set before him, Jesus endures the cross. What comfort is it to know that that's our Savior? That he hasn't promised that life will be easy and good and prosperous on this side of eternity, but he's promised to be with us. He's promised to sympathize, to walk with us, and to give us the comfort that we need as we go through those hard times. If you don't know that comfort yet, there's no level of self-help. There's no level of, like, I'll just get better at suffering. I'll get better at whatever. That's not the message of the, of, of the gospel. That's not the message of the Bible. The message is you come meet Jesus, and he becomes that comfort. He becomes your life. So if you don't know him as your savior, man, come today. The Bible says you confess you're a sinner and that Jesus is that savior and that you're making him the Lord of your life, you shall be saved today. Do that. That's the greatest gift. That's what allows us to rejoice in our sufferings and to look ahead to a hope that can't be taken from us. It's the gospel. Church, let's rejoice in that. Let's step toward Jesus wherever you are, wherever he's inviting you toward Let's, let's respond to him this morning. God, um, we come acknowledging that there are, there's pain and hardship in this room. Um, it's really hard to reconcile with your goodness. And yet we accept your word. We surrender to it and we ask that you would move through your spirit in such a way that we would be able to rejoice in the midst of our sufferings today. Father, I pray that that you would be with your people, that you would, would draw near and, and be our ever-present refuge in our time of need, that you would be uh, near to the brokenhearted. And a voice of hope for those who are struggling. Thank you, Jesus for the unimaginable love and hope and glory that you've given us through the gospel. May it make its way into the deep places of our lives this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.